Welcome to our podcast, Heart Failure Morning Commute, Patient Diagnosis and Subtype Classification of Heart Failure. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by independent educational grants from Boeinger Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Eli Lilly and Company and from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation. In this episode, Dr. Deepak Bhatt and Dr. Javed Butler discuss diagnosing the heart failure patient in the primary care setting. What should be part of the process of this diagnosis? And how important is it to take a thorough medical and family history? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash heartfailure1. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Bott is Executive Director of Interventional Cardiovascular Programs, Brigham and Women's Hospital Heart and Vascular Center, and a Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Boston. Dr. Butler is Professor of Medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of Mississippi, Jackson. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Bott will begin our discussion. Welcome to our podcast series on heart failure. David, thank you for joining me. Let's lay some foundational groundwork here and talk about diagnosing the heart failure patient in the primary care setting. So perhaps we can just start off in terms of, especially in the primary care setting, what should physicians look for to make the diagnosis of heart failure? Of course, can't treat heart failure without making the diagnosis. Yeah, thank you, uh, uh, Deepak. Uh, absolutely great to be here. You know, this question is actually much more important than, than sometimes we, we think about it because uh, if you look at the data as to where the patients get diagnosed with heart failure, predominantly 80% plus, that diagnosis is made in the emergency room when somebody shows up with shortness of breath, edema, and is not doing very well. Uh, that's not because heart failure just came you know, into existence a, a, a few hours back. That's because person has symptoms for weeks and months, and, and in some cases, maybe even more than a year, has been seen in the primary care setting. And the primary care colleagues have very appropriately so ruled out many of the common causes of symptoms like shortness of breath and tiredness and fatigue, things like COPD, asthma, anemia, hypothyroidism. Uh, but after doing that sort of initial screen, uh, it is so common to blame the symptoms on either aging uh, or obesity. Uh, if a person happens to be obese, not realizing that perhaps three months, six months ago, when a person did not have these symptoms, uh, the person perhaps was equally uh, obese or, or was only six months uh, younger. And somehow heart failure is not there in the differential diagnosis Still, the person gets to an extremist and shows up in the emergency room. So I think primary care plays a really critical part in the diagnosis of these patients. And I wish that we would have heart failure as part of the differential diagnosis and either biomarkers or echocardiography or what, whatever strategy you take, uh, keep that in mind to rule out uh, heart failure as well. Yeah, those are really great points. And I think it's challenging in any setting, but especially in primary care, because there are lots of different patients coming in, patient types, complaints that patients have, a limited amount of time to assess it. Leg swelling is very common for a variety of different etiologies, venous insufficiency, for example. 
and it might not always be uh, linked to heart failure. A shortness of breath, that's another very common symptom. There can be lots of etiologies. Uh, what do you think can be useful in terms of testing? Do you favor BNP testing, that is brain natriuretic peptide testing, a blood test? Uh, what should the threshold be for echocardiography? Uh, and then what I'll uh, finally ask in that uh, sort of uh, series of diagnostic questions is, who needs an ischemia evaluation if heart failure is suspected? Yeah, so, you know, in the future world, uh, either we will have tests mu with, with much better sensitivity specificity, but honestly, the way uh, the world is moving, uh, you know, app-based or handheld echocardiography will really become like a stethoscope, but we are not in that world right now. So what do we do right now today? I mean, I think you cannot get by uh, without uh, doing an echocardiogram in order to make the diagnosis and evaluate the etiology. So an echocardiography is must. Having said that, uh, you know, it's not, not very easy to get echocardiography and it may not be available in all practice settings or there may be a long wait in certain uh, communities to get an echocardiogram or referral uh, to cardiology. So for all sorts of practical reasons, uh, I think initial screening with natriuretic peptide is, is sort of really good. Now, if your natriuretic peptide levels are really elevated, you know, you're pretty much, you've made the diagnosis of heart failure. Certainly you will refer the patient for an echocardiography to further differentiate whether somebody has heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, preserved ejection fraction, whether there are any, any clues as to uh, the etiology. However, the negative predictive value may not be as good. So in other words, if your natriuretic peptide levels are not very elevated, uh, there are certain conditions uh, like obesity, for instance, that these patients may have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and really not have a lot of uh, uh, natriuretic peptide level elevation. So if the levels are high, uh, you can proceed with the rest of the evaluation. If the levels are not high, but the person has persistent symptoms and you have ruled out other etiologies, uh, and you really don't have a good diagnosis, I think referring that patient uh, for some sort of a stress-based uh, echocardiography or some other testing uh, may be uh, uh, really worth it and, and not to ignore the patient's symptoms. So your, your next question was, you know, who to evaluate for ischemia? So that has been debated quite a lot, not only who to evaluate ischemia, but also how to evaluate ischemia and does everybody needs a cardiac catheterization to rule out ischemia. Uh, by and large, I think ischemia evaluation is underdone in heart failure patients. There is a class two recommendation that patients who have heart failure uh, should really be evaluated uh, for ischemia. So I would say, you know, if, if, if a person is otherwise pretty straightforward, right, you know, you have a 22-year-old female, you know, develops heart failure a few weeks after delivery and, and the diagnosis of postpartum cardiomyopathy is pretty straightforward. Uh, short of that, uh, uh, at least getting a stress test to rule out ischemia as an evaluation is probably a, a pretty reasonable idea. Now, if somebody had, you know, a history of, you know, chest pains or angina kind of symptoms or Q waves or whatnot, and if you want to do uh, a cardiac catheterization, I don't think that uh, you could be faulted for that. And along the lines of cardiac catheterization, this is an issue that comes up even with cardiologists is your feeling uh, that that should be a left heart catheterization, meaning essentially a coronary angiogram, or should it always include a right heart catheterization that is looking at the pressures in the chambers of the heart? Yeah, so uh, I am sure that if you go around uh, talking to a bunch of our colleagues, uh, you'll probably get a variety of opinions on, on this one. 
Uh, so I, I at least belong to the camp that I don't think you need a right heart catheterization on everyone because that will be very unlikely to inform uh, your therapy. You will still give the therapy and I would keep the right heart cath uh, for individuals who after standard therapy continues to have uh, sort of persistent symptoms. And also for ischemia evaluation, if you do choose to assess coronary uh, anatomy and not just a stress test, uh, whether you do a cardiac CT or whether you do a cardiac cath, uh, both of them, I think, will be a pretty uh, uh, reasonable alternatives. Well, I'm really glad you said that. I mean, I, uh, of course, uh, it was uh, trained in always doing a, a left and a right heart cath, uh, that is coronary angiogram, LVEDP, meaning left ventricular and diastolic pressure measurement, right heart cath, me meaning measuring the pressures in the right atrium, the right ventricle, the pulmonary artery or wedge pressure in every patient with a new diagnosis of heart failure. But, but I do think that's a bit of outdated thinking. I mean, I agree with you, unless there's a suspicion, say, for pulmonary hypertension, I'm not sure there really is immense value in doing the right heart cath, assuming there's a good echo that has been done, for example. And I think CT angio, in cases where it's a really low pretest probability of coronary artery disease, but there's still some degree of concern or a need for reassurance that the heart failure isn't on the basis of coronary artery disease. Yeah, I think in the modern era, CT angio can be used in many cases where we used to use invasive coronary angiography. So I agree with you uh, with all of that. You know, you did in your answer mention a couple of things, and I just was hoping to uh, have you really drill it down for the audience. You mentioned heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Uh, potentially, there's also another category of mid-range, uh, the nomenclature of which uh, seems to change every few uh, months. Uh, do you want to just talk to the audience a bit about that? I think a lot of folks in the house might have heard of you know, systolic and diastolic heart failure, which are uh, word terms that were very commonly used, but, but the nomenclature has really um, changed. Do you want to just break that down? Yeah, so let me sort of quickly give a little bit of a historical perspective because these classifications are rooted more in history than in biology uh, uh, for all practical purposes. So, you know, we lived in an era in the 1980s where the only treatment for heart failure was digoxin and diuretics. And we were evaluating uh, vasodilators because we did know that some patients have really vasoconstriction, low blood pressure, tachycardia, low cardiac output, and that vasodilators perhaps may be of, of benefit. Uh, the question is, if you do a large trial, a monthly center trial of vasodilators, you're not going to be able to do a right heart catheterization on, on you know, sort of everybody. Uh, so what is sort of a good surrogate that, that there are substantial hemodynamic abnormalities present? Now, again, remember, we are talking about the 1980s and digoxin diuretics, not the, not the modern medical therapy. And of course, ejection fraction had a pretty good correlation. The lower the ejection fraction, more the hemodynamic abnormalities. So the initial study was done with ejection fraction less than 35%, and then for some uh, feasibility reasons, it kind of crept up to 40%. And that kind of became the standard because once we had, you know, hydralazine nitrate, so nitroprusside tested. Uh, we said, well, let's look at ACE inhibitors. Not, not as ACE inhibitors, we think about it today as a, as a angiotensin II modulator, but, but as a vasodilator as compared to hydralazine nitrates. Uh, but because that was, you know, assessed at EF of 40, now we need to assess this one at EF of 40, and it sort of created a disease. Then we realized that, you know, there are a lot of people coming in with heart failure who have ejection fractions greater than 40, almost half of them, so we need to study that group. And the CHARM investigators uh, really had a difficult choice at that point when they were investigating uh, Candace Sarton across the spectrum of heart failure. 
what to do? They could either have uh, assessed candesartan and heart failure with a normal ejection fraction, say greater than 50, knowing that 40 to 50 is not normal, except then we would have never had any evidence of what is this heart failure between 40 to 50%. So the term specifically was chosen heart failure with preserved ejection fraction because everybody knew that more than 40 is not necessarily normal. So then we dichotomized to reduced and preserved. Well, time moves forward, we got some more data and it looks like that the 40 to 50% really acts like heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and not really like heart failure with preserved. So all of this is being debated, but where we are today is for diagnostic, for classification purposes, we have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, 40% or less, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, 50 or more, and then we call it heart failure with, with mildly reduced ejection fraction between 40 and 50. Now that's for classification purposes, but honestly for management purposes, uh, that, 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 that is already outdated and we treat everybody less than 50 as if it's the same thing. I think that's really very useful because that's been a source of confusion in cardiology. And I think also maybe perhaps more so in primary care, changing the uh, verbiage uh, so frequently. And I think it really does matter the classifications because for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, uh, there are just so many treatments for that. And I believe the real challenge has been more one of implementation science, just making sure the right patients get started on the right therapies and hopefully in rapid sequence after the initial diagnosis instead of just doing it over the course of months or years. And we'll come back to therapies uh, in a bit. Uh, in, in a subsequent podcast, but uh, but I think, again, the therapies are flowing from what the diagnosis is, and specifically the exact type of heart failure. With heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, on the other hand, until recently, there haven't been any effective therapies, but now there are, and in fact, the promise of perhaps more to come, lots of research going on in that area. So very important uh, to make that distinction. Speaking of distinctions, you know, something that I think has gotten more attention in recent years are just various causes of heart failure beyond just what I'll call bread and butter causes, ones that are more rare but have very specific uh, treatments where it is important to make the diagnosis in a way that maybe 10 years ago it didn't really matter if you made the diagnosis or missed it because there wasn't any therapy anyway. And uh, I'll just provide uh, two examples of that and, and you know, uh, perhaps you can just provide insights into any specific diagnosis needed. Uh, the first of the two, and we can just start with that, is amyloid, where until recently there weren't therapies, and now there are a number of therapies that are uh, quite effective for amyloid. They're, they're a bit expensive, but nonetheless uh, are effective. But again, they can't be used if the diagnosis isn't made. And it's something I think most people learned about when they were in medical school as one of those uh, zebras or esoteric things out there. But as it turns out, uh, now that there are effective treatments, uh, well, as often happens, the diagnosis is being made more often and hopefully referred on appropriately. But any pearls you want to share in terms of amyloidosis and how that factors into heart failure? Who should we look for it in? What might be clues that someone has it? Yeah, so, you know, this is really a growing feel and we are sort of all trying to grapple with it, both the epidemiology and how to evaluate these patients. Uh, you know, in my uh, earlier part of my career as a transplant cardiologist, uh, we worried about amyloidosis when we really didn't have a diagnosis, uh, other etiology for heart failure and somebody was to be listed for transplant and you just wanted to rule out amyloid because 
uh, the the amyloid may come back into the transplanted heart or or something like that. But now uh, that we actually have effective therapies for these patients, uh, we have done a lot of epidemiologic studies, and you know the the, the final jury is a little bit out. But it looks like somewhere between ten to twenty percent of the patients with half pef may actually have underlying amyloidosis that that uh, we did not know. Uh, so you know clinical clues are sort of you know usually things that are associated with uh, amyloidosis. You know somebody have nephrotic syndrome, uh, uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, spinal stenosis, uh, uh, has uh, LVH, uh, low voltage on uh, EKG, LVH, but no history of hypertension. So those kind of things that, that give you a little bit of a clue uh, whether you should move forward or not. If uh, clinically you suspect that somebody may have, uh, then uh, the next step is to check uh, monoclonal light chain uh, uh, antibodies, if positive, I would probably send that person to, to hematology consult. And if it's negative, uh, then checking a, a PYP technician scan uh, is the way to go. If that is negative, so your antibodies are negative and your PYP scan is negative, uh, I think you're done. And, and it's very unlikely to be, to be amyloidosis. But then if it's positive, then again, for the primary care sector, it starts getting a little bit more complicated because then we need to differentiate between the wild type and the TTR variant. So uh, uh, probably at that point, referring to a, to a specialty program is, is, is a good idea. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And the other place that amyloid sort of popped up is in patients undergoing TAVR or TAVI, that is transcatheter aortic valve replacement, which of course, cardiologists are seeing a lot of at this point in time in the U.S., and for that matter, worldwide, I believe, but certainly in the U.S., uh, TAVR has exceeded surgical aortic valve replacement in frequency, and, and this is a transcatheter percutaneous way of uh, uh, replacing an aortic valve instead of open-heart surgery. And um, as it turns out, a proportion of these patients, especially the ones initially enrolled in trials and registries, older patients, non-surgical candidates, those sorts of patients, there was a, a fair number that were having unsuspected amyloid there, and in some cases, those patients who otherwise you might have hoped or expected they'd have some recovery of their LV function, assuming their LV function was reduced, uh, after uh, uh, the transcatheterotic valve replacement, it won't get better. And, and it does seem like uh, amyloid uh, lurking there is in part an explanation in some of those patients. So uh, it's, it's, as I mentioned, once therapies are there, awareness of a disease state grows and it, it just seems to pop up all over the place. So. I think um, in a primary care setting as well, you'll be hearing more about uh, cardiac amyloidosis. The other one I wanted to ask you about where it can contribute to heart failure and sort of, I think, fell in the same category of amyloidosis where probably something people learned about in medical school, but then thought, oh, I'm never gonna really see that or maybe see it uh, once or twice in a lifetime in a primary care setting and even not that frequently, maybe in a cardiology setting is HCM or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, what many learned in medical school as HOCAM, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, though it turns out it doesn't have to be obstructive. And that's why it's now more often called HCM or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, because it can be either obstructive or non-obstructive or in between. Um, anything you want to tell the audience about that uh, potential cause of heart failure? Yeah, again, right, so so important, not only because of the, the prognostic uh, purposes, but now we're talking about a, a different pathophysiology, and now there are specific therapies available uh, for those patients. So making a diagnosis 
uh, becomes really important. Uh, now, if you're a really, really astute clinician with your stethoscope, you may get a lot of clues on your physical examination. But by and large, if you're suspecting somebody to have heart failure uh, and get a good echocardiogram, uh, then uh, then the diagnosis should be uh, made at this uh, uh, at, at that level. Another thing that I will mention, you know, so amyloidosis, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, really important because we now have some. Uh, uh, therapies uh, as well uh, for these patients uh, is to just make sure, just do a good screen when somebody has new onset uh, diagnosis for uh, heart failure. So of course, we talked about ischemia evaluation, you know, rule out some other things like, uh, you know, hypothyroidism, uh, uh, iron overload, those, those kind of things. Uh, but also a couple of more things that, that I've seen a lot of our colleagues sort of uh, uh, don't necessarily uh, document these things. So one is a good a history of uh, uh, drug abuse, substance abuse, or uh, other medications that they may be taking uh, over the counter, uh, all that kind of stuff. And we don't know what, what might be the impact of that. So getting a good history is important. The other thing is that if somebody just has sort of, you know, uh, non-schemic dilated cardiomyopathy, uh, taking a good family history is really important, a, a three-generational family history, because if there is any suspect, uh, you know, if you suspect genetic cardiomyopathy as the basis, uh, then referring for uh, testing and counseling may be really important, uh, but that may not surface uh, unless and until you uh, uh, take a good family history for uh, heart failure as well. And, and it's not only heart failure, but also take history uh, for uh, either sudden cardiac death or, or seemingly accidental deaths as well, because that may be a manifestation of sudden cardiac death. So a good history all the things that the patient is taking and a good family history is really part and parcel along with these blood tests and, and imaging studies. Wow, those were a lot of pearls you just dropped there in the last couple of minutes we've got for this segment. I hope the audience got all of that. There's just really a lot of good stuff. So, you know, as far as HCM, again, uh, lots of excitement there. Recently, a randomized clinical trial showing beta blockers are useful in that disease state. We've been using beta blockers for a while, but now there's some randomized data. Uh, also, um, interesting data about a uh, myosin inhibitor. Uh, we'll see if those uh, enter clinical practice. The data look quite promising. Uh, they're uh, undergoing a regulatory review now. And uh, just, I think, the points uh, you made, Javed, as far as uh, essentially the genetics of uh, many dilated cardiomyopathies, that there's a familial basis. Knowledge is exploding in that uh, area. Again, a number of recent publications showing that in people that have a so-called familial cardiomyopathies that a pretty high percentage of their relatives will have uh, genetic um, mutations that put them at higher risk. This is uh, particularly higher, I think, in black patients, but even just uh, more broadly speaking, uh, we're beginning to understand the important role of genetics in a, a subset of heart failure. So lots of exciting developments in heart failure in terms of the diagnosis, advanced diagnostics, therapeutics, but it all starts in the clinic uh, with that uh, physician who's making that first contact, making that diagnosis of heart failure. A lot of the subtleties of what we're talking about can be sorted out in a referral cardiology clinic. But if that initial diagnosis and referral aren't made, well, then none of those advances can actually help the patient. Well, Javid, it's been a great discussion with you. So for our audience, just to let you know, in our next podcast, we'll take a deeper dive into heart failure with a look at guidelines, and managing patients with mid-range or mildly reduced or preserved ejection fractions. So stay tuned for that podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash heart failure one. 
Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.